I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. On this episode, I talked to Raiola Osanya from New Jersey. Raiola went on the mission team to Nairobi, Kenya in the late 80s. And from there, he went on to plant more churches in Eldoret, Kenya, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and Kigali, Rwanda. He just finished a memoir of his missionary and charity work in Africa entitled, Go in the Strength You Have, Looking Beyond Your Weaknesses to See the Difference Your Life Can Make. I read the book and talked with Raiola about his experiences in Africa. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I'm here with Raiola Osanya, who went to Kenya in his early 20s and then wrote a book about the experience. Now he's a professor, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about his service in the kingdom of God. Raiola, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rob, and thanks for having me. Yeah, you've written a book called Go in the Strength You Have, Looking Beyond Your Weaknesses to See the Difference Your Life Can Make. I've read the book. It's a great book, and I hope it, I hope it sells really well. But in it, you share about your missionary experience, your life serving on the mission field in Africa, helping out with hope. Uh, you've offered advice to singles. It's a very, very interesting book, and I look forward to talking to you about some of the experiences you had in it. Let's start with this question. How did you become a Christian? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for, for those kind words. And, um, yeah, it's been a joy uh, writing the book. Uh, so how, so I'll go back to when I was in first few years of elementary school. At that point, I was living in Ethiopia. So my dad worked in Ethiopia. My family lived in Ethiopia. And the school that we were at was a Canadian mission school. So that was my first exposure to the Bible. And I, I loved the Bible. I didn't read the Bible much, but I loved the Bible, you know, <laughs> Bible stories. I remember once uh, playing the role of Goliath in a little David and Goliath skit. Um, and so then later on, you know, fast forward for high school, I ended up at a Catholic school. And at that point in my life, I had um, a drive to, to get to know Jesus I can't remember if it's more like when I got to the school, the atmosphere gave me that drive, or if I had the drive and it was just a great um, a synergy there. But so there were different things. We'd have to go to mass uh, in the chapel, and I was impressed. You know, the stained glass windows, and it was like to me, it was it was like a very holy atmosphere. Right. And you know, also once a semester, you'd have you know one-on-one -on -one conversations with a priest. And so actually, I wanted to buy into that. And uh, so if they had let me in, I would have, that's the direction I wanted to take. But what they said was, you know, I guess they were very careful not to try to convert people. So what they told me was, you know, whatever your family's church is, go there. And we didn't really have a church, but, you know, my dad had some allegiance. So there's a, so a church I went to. I wasn't getting much out of church. 
uh, but we did get to play soccer, uh, you know, after Sunday school. So uh, I enjoyed that, but then, you know, that fell off. And then after that, my family, we moved to Morocco because my dad got a job in Morocco. And my last few months in Morocco, as you know, at that point I was done with high school and I was preparing to, you know, move back here to the States for college. And there was a, a little church. It was called the American Church in Tangier. So that was the city, Tangier in northern Morocco. And this, and I, I didn't used to attend the church. I don't even remember like how I knew about this, but they brought in this energetic young guy. And uh, you know, so he was he was doing Bible lessons. So he just gathered, I think because we were our school was called the American School of Tangier. So I guess you know you have Americans there or people who speak English. So that was a great target group. And so during the summer. He had all sorts of activities and he was such a fun guy. I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, like he's Christian, he's fun. And then for me, my ambition was to be a professional soccer player. That, that's what, that was everything for me. Mm. Uh, my twin brother and I, that's an ambition that we had. And so this particular gentleman, he had been um, a football player. And so just part of him sharing his life was about how as, as much as football was his dream, he had put that aside because of the gospel. And so, so many things were attracting me about him. And so, uh, you know, so we had a great time for a couple months. And then, so I asked them, so I'm going back to the States now. Uh, where should I go to church? And they told me, okay, when you get there, you know, wherever your college is, find a, a, a Baptist church in town and go there. And so that was the answer. And I remember asking myself, why a Baptist church? Like, why are they sending me there in particular? <laughs> so that was a question in my head. And then, um, so I got to college. I was at Williams College. Uh, that's in uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts, way up in the Berkshire Hills. And I was on the soccer team. And guess what? One of the biggest fans, maybe the number one fan of the soccer team was the local Baptist pastor. <laughs> and so he'd be at the soccer practices and, and everything. So he's right there. So I'm like, I was told to go to a Baptist church. There's a Baptist pastor right here. He's a soccer fan. I'm on the soccer team. And so I eventually went there a couple of times and I have nothing against the Baptist church. But I remember that I would leave there feeling like I didn't quite get anything from it. You know, and the pastor would be at the door at the end. And, you know, as we leave, he'd shake our hands. And now truth be told, I really wasn't doing a lot. You know, there's room for me to have more initiative. Uh, but that's what kind of struck me. Uh, and I thought, okay, yeah, he's a great soccer fan. You know, he's a teacher. But I just felt a lack of, um, there was, I didn't feel that there was anything beyond that. And then in my freshman year, because uh, I had tried to be a Christian. I didn't know what a Christian was, but I tried to be a Christian. I liked the Bible. And in my freshman year, you know, so one of the things that I uh, tried to stay clear of was, uh, you know, improper uh, sexual relations. Uh, the other things I tried to avoid, some of it was just because I was into sports, you know, things like smoking and, and drinking and stuff. But in my freshman year, uh, so I got involved at one point with one of um, my, uh, my female colleagues and um, it, yeah, I felt it was, it was poor decision-making on my part, but it, it uh, like I felt that I was, I was strained. 
And so I remember saying, you know what? I, I need to go back to the Baptist church. I need to see the pastor and I need to talk to him. But then another voice told me, but when I was there, he, he didn't really show any interest. Mm. And so I decided I wasn't going to go there. Uh, in the end, that relationship ended. And it ended because uh, the girl dumped me. That was incredibly embarrassing. Uh, she, she was a senior. I was a freshman. It was just a lot of things. But anyway, she dumped me. Uh, then I ended up with um, another girl who was a freshman, just like I was. And again, it was an improper uh, relationship. The difference now is she said she was Christian. And I remember having a conversation with her and I thought, no, this, this, this can't be right. And you know, the usual line, you know, as long as we love each other, it's okay. And that was her line. I still felt this can't be right, but I was still in it. Mm. Then the academic year came to an end. So I came back to New York. Uh, she's from Los Angeles. So she went to, to LA. Uh, so here I was back in New York and I was just burning with my desire to, to get my life right. And guess what happened? One day I was, um, you know, I'd gone to look for my sister. She was working in Manhattan. Uh, I didn't get her. Uh, she had left already. So I was on my own heading back home. Um, I, was, I was staying with her. And I, I got out of a subway, tra uh, subway train. And as I got out of the subway train, there was somebody standing on the platform. He told me his name. And he said, I'd like to invite you to a Bible discussion. And I think, I know I thought this in my head. I don't know if I asked him, but I kind of wondered, like, but why did you ask me? Because clearly several people had gotten off the train ahead of me. But it was amazing. Because in our conversation, he ticked the boxes of all the things I was looking for. He said it was a non-denominational church. Because remember, I had had that question. You know, why was I being asked to go to a Baptist church? Yet there's so many different churches. There. Right. You know, I mean, there's only one Bible. Why are there so many different churches? So when he said non-denominational, he had me. Then we had a conversation, and I, I really didn't know Brooklyn very well, because as much as I was born in New York, I grew up outside of the States. Uh, and I'd been wanting to find a place where I could play soccer and, and, and stay in shape ahead of the next season. And he was like, yeah, come, you know, I, I can take you where we'll play soccer. And, um, and then also he was um, kind of an international guy. And so that's what I, was, I had been looking for. Kind of like an international group of people because mm. uh, in my freshman year at college what happened was i just felt like there was some um, um unspoken racial division so even in the um, in the dining halls you know, you know you'd have a bunch of black students and they'd kind of like all be in one corner and i just wasn't really comfortable with that so all the three things i was looking for seemed to be represented by this gentleman a non-denominational church an international mixed flavor and soccer. <laughs> so uh, I, I had no idea where, like the address for that Bible discussion. So instead we agreed, I'll, I'll go to church. Because if anything's in Manhattan, I can find it. You know, take a subway train and it's, it's very findable. That was a Friday. Um, I said, hey, listen, yeah, call me. Make sure I wake up on Sunday. I'll be at church. And I woke up long before his phone call, got to church. And, uh, you know, from there we had, uh, we had Bible studies. Uh, some I, I really enjoyed. Others were really challenging. Uh, but then ultimately, uh, you know, some of the amazing men in the Bible studies, uh, there was a brother, Greg Eller, uh, Mitch Mitchell, an amazing, amazing man. He's now in the Triangle. He was in Brooklyn at the time. And, and they helped me reach a decision. And so what happens, at one point I was stalling with my decision. And then at midweek service, they used to have a class 
for visitors. And so I remember going to the visitors class and you know, Steve Kennard was uh, teaching that class. Uh, so Steve Kennard, right now he's in um, Hudson Valley, you know, still with the New York uh, church. And there's a statement he made. I don't remember anything else he said, but one thing he said, he said, there's some of you here tonight who if you don't make a decision to become a disciple now, you might never make that decision. And I thought, you know what? He's right. Mm. <laughs> and so that night, uh, I decided to, uh, you know, to make Jesus Lord. There was still more to discuss, but that, that night I was just, I was all in. Uh, part of the challenge, by the way, was that as we were studying the Bible, there was a discussion about me leaving Williams College that I needed to be in New York and to be with the church and to be surrounded by the members of the church. And so if I was going to get baptized, then I needed to leave Williams College. And so that was one of my challenges. You know, I had, because I had come over, you know, I, like I said, I did high school in Morocco. I came here and was with my sister briefly in Brooklyn and went straight to Williams College. That's kind of all I had. And Williams College is also a pretty, it's, you know, it's a pretty, a good college. It's highly ranked. It's part of what they call the Middle Ivy. It's a bunch of liberal arts colleges, in uh, mostly in the in the Northeast, and, and and that was that was a heavy one, but in the end, I decided, yep, you know, it does make sense. Mm. If I just go, if I go back up there, I see myself just going back to my old life, you know, because there wasn't as much communication as there is now. Now you have internet, phone. I mean, it's, right. it's super easy to stay in touch even with people. Like so I decided to leave Williams College. I did not consult my dad or anybody. It was my decision, and I made the decision. And I uh, decided to stay in Brooklyn, be with the church, get baptized. And uh, you know, I called my soccer coach. I said, Coach, uh, you know, I'm leaving Williams. I'll be staying in New York. And so that's that's how I became. Wow. Uh, what, what year was that? That was 1988. Okay, 1988. Okay, great time in the kingdom. Lots, lots of stuff going on. Church in New York had been there about five years. I'm sure it's yes. around a thousand people at that point. I don't, I don't know how big it was, but I know it was. Yeah, pretty... I think about that. Yep, and we were meeting at the Beacon Theater on Sundays. Okay, you know, as you talk, Rice, and and you go by Rice as well as Raiola. You've got nickname Rice. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of an earlier conversation I had with Hervé Florent because he also grew up overseas and very international background. I mean, he was, oh gosh, born in Haiti. He, he went to school in France. He went to school in Spain. I mean, he speaks English, Creole, Spanish, French. I mean, now Arabic and who knows what other uh, tribal languages he picked up while he was in Africa. But it really must have given you a very interesting perspective on life to, to, be in Ethiopia, Kenya, Morocco, and then come back to the States, you must have felt mm -hmm. a little bit like I'm, I'm not, I don't quite fit in here in, with my um, people in my same age. Yeah, it's interesting you mention uh, Hervé because Hervé is an incredibly, incredibly uh, dear friend of mine. He and his wife, Janet, have had an indelible impact in, in my life, in my and my wife's life in our family, which yeah, I also write about in the book. So yeah, he was born in Boston, by the way. Oh, Boston. Okay, okay. that's right. His yes. dad his dad was, I believe, a composer, a musician. I mean, right. 
you yeah, know, it's got this, professor. you know, just an amazing person. But anyway, uh, interesting. Now, what, why'd you write that, write this book? You, you, most people talk about it. Few people actually do. You wrote a book about your missionary experience. What prompted you to write it? I'd say several things. And one is that I, I love writing. I, it's just, it's something I've enjoyed. The strange thing is I don't like reading. <laughs> right. um, I, I, I love writing. Now, I don't know what that says about me, uh, that I'd rather talk than listen, but um, I love writing. And so I've long wanted to, to write a book. And for me, it's just kind of like, because I like, I love writing, I'd like to write a book. It's kind of like, to me, if you're in the NFL, right. you want to get to the Super Bowl. Right. You don't just want to be in the NFL. You know, if you're in Hollywood, then you want to get an Oscar. You want to hold a statue. So it wasn't even so much, I don't know, for like, let's say, I don't know, prominence. I'm trying to write a bestseller. I just wanted to write right. and have a book. And I, you know, there were times I, I, I put some things together and I thought to myself, you know, I could, I could develop this into a book. But, but, but that didn't quite happen. Um, I had different ideas over the years. Because I remember now when uh, my wife and I, when we were engaged, and I was advised to read several books, and I bought several books, and I love them. Books about marriage, books about engagement. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I want to contribute. I want to write a book about marriage. Right. Uh, and then um, it, it very soon became clear to me that uh, when it comes to marriage, uh, I need to be reading rather than writing. <laughs> so... <laughs> That, that, that idea was, it wasn't put on the shelf. It was just, okay, I'm, I'm going to read. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read when it comes to marriage. But one, one day, it, it kind of hit me. And actually what happened, I, I went back to Kenya for the 25th anniversary service of the Nairobi church. And, you know, a few of the mission team members were there. Not, not all of the mission team members managed to make it. And they, they found a role in that church service for for each of the mission team members who made it. And so, you know, a sister and I, her name is Deanne, uh, for our role was to cut the cake. There was a big celebratory cake. So we got to say a few words before cutting the cake. And so what I said then is what later pretty much became the book because it stuck with me. And what I said was that when the church was planted on that mission team, I was the weak link. Now, Rob, I wasn't saying that to gain people's sympathy <laughs> or, you know, because I wanted to get hugs. It's, it's, I, I was a weak link. You know, you ask any of the guys on that mission team, I was the weak link. And yet at that point in time, you know, at the 25th anniversary service, I was able to look back and see that my life had made a difference. I'm not saying that I was amazing or I was incredible. But my life had made a difference. There were people sitting there who could come to me and would say, thank you. And that's what I thought. You know what? Even the weakest link can have an impact and make a difference. Wow. It, it, def so, it definitely comes through in the book. And, and mm -hmm. we're going to talk more about that. But let's just talk about how did you end up going back to Nairobi? It's kind of an interesting story. You lived in Kenya, but then you were converted in New York. You end up going back. What was it like for you to leave New York and return to Kenya? I mean, you're born in the States, but you're going back yes. to a place you grew up for part of your upbringing. 
Yeah, for me, going back to Kenya was, uh, it was very exciting. And I, I, I had just one thought because, I, you know, to a large extent, I didn't really know what to expect. I was 19 years old when Jim Brown came to me and said, you know, join our mission team. And again, it was just, it was my decision. It's not, nobody in my family agreed with the decision or it didn't make sense to anybody in my family. Um, one thing I would say for my dad, as much as he didn't approve of my decision, he was supportive. Mm. Okay. He probably thought I was crazy. And then at that age, I didn't see why everyone else thinks this is so crazy. It's kind of like, Hey, I'm a disciple, you know, let's do this. But one thought that I had I, is, is this, if I'm doing this for God, it's going to work out. Okay. Mm. So that was the one thing that I took with me, you know, as I, as I you know, left uh, New York, and went back to Nairobi. And for me, it also represented an opportunity to, to make a difference. Wow. Because growing up, uh, you know, as a child in Kenya, there's a point where I just, I, I wanted to make a difference. It's like when I was in fifth grade. And so I thought about different people who had made differences. And I thought, you know what? They all, they all got killed. Because <laughs> I thought about politicians. Mm -hmm. I thought about people like Martin Luther King Jr. Right. So I thought, uh, you know, I don't want to get killed. So I don't want to go that route. But I remembered that at this point when I was called on to the mission team, I had always wanted to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it wasn't, you know, like, you know, death. Okay, it's not like my life was at stake, but the point was this was an opportunity to make a difference, which is what I'd always dreamed to be able to do. Okay, so, in, so in, in, yeah. in, this, in the book, you talk about how it, it people didn't know that you had spent time in Kenya. Can you talk a little bit about that? It, it, it was kind of a secret. So can you talk a little bit about how that got discovered? All right. Uh, people in New York, right? Yeah. Yes. So what happened was, um, so even as I, I got baptized, you know, because I'm, you know, my, my, my dad's from Kenya. My mom's from New York. I was born in New York. I was raised in Kenya. So, you know, there's, 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 there's both elements in there. So even as I you know, studied the Bible and got baptized, you know, those around me knew that there was a Kenyan connection. And at that time, the New York church was planning to plant the church in Kenya. So that used to be talked about a lot. So in general, it was talked about the New York church was going to plant a church in Kenya, as well as uh, Zimbabwe at the time. And, um, and then, uh, you know, a couple that I really love, still, still love them, uh, Nietzsche and Daisy Oguaya. You know, Nietzsche has since uh, passed on and gone on ahead of us. Um, uh, but Daisy, you know, she and I were at Brooklyn College together. And then Nietzsche and Daisy, they were engaged and, and they were on the mission team. So, so that conversation was, it was a kind of a constant conversation. But I didn't want to go back to Kenya. That I didn't. And so I remember I eventually got to know people, other people who are on the mission team, you know, apart from Daisy and Nietzsche. And so I went to the wedding of a couple who were also part of the mission team. Now, looking back, that seems, that, that wasn't a very wise decision. If I'm trying to avoid <laughs> getting on the Kenya mission team, why am I going to a wedding of a couple that's on the mission team and other mission team members are gonna be there. But uh, so at some point I met, um, I met Jim Brown. I made sure I didn't tell him too much about me. But then later on, uh, as I recall, he was having a conversation with, uh, with, with, with Nietzsche. It was either Nietzsche or it was Alcides, one of the others. And they're like, yeah, I, yeah, I know Raiola. Yeah, he's, he's Kenyan. <laughs> so, 
Well, you know, one day I'm at work, I get this call from Jim because uh, I had given him my number. Uh, again, bad move if I didn't want Jim following up on me. Right. And so, yep, he, he um, asked me onto the mission team. Okay, that's that's a crazy story. Okay, so you mentioned Alcides. Alcides was on an earlier podcast that, that I interviewed him, and <clears throat> he's from Brazil. What what was he doing going on a mission team to Kenya? How, what's the connection there? My understanding of the connection is, so Mike and Ambrigitte Tolliver had led the church planting to Sao Paulo. And that's where uh, Alcides became a Christian. And then uh, Leslie had been a part of that mission team as well. And Leslie and Alcides were dating at the time. I see. So I believe that the Tollivers were the connection. Okay. And so the Tollivers, I, 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 I believe, uh, you know, called them to be part of the team. Yeah. And, uh, so there was Alcides, you know, even in New York. He, he didn't know English, <laughs> but, you know, he was up there. He was doing communion messages and, you know, getting himself ready for Kenya. I think that's, that's how he made it on the team. Pretty bold. Okay. Now, Very, here, this is what I find really interesting about your book. Raiola, is that you You mentioned being afraid a lot. You mentioned having weaknesses. You, you just mentioned being the weak link. But as a reader, it seems every time that you were called to do something bold or crazy, you did it. I mean, you ended up pushing past it. So where did that come from? I, you know, you, you mentioned in, in, in the book about Bible algebra. You say, let's see if I can find it here. You said, um, the strength that you have plus God's mighty power equals no need to be scared, doubtful, or anxious. Uh, you've got a lot of little aphorisms like that, little maxims that are sprinkled throughout the book. But it strikes me as like, this guy is really gutsy. And yet you portray yourself as, as really terrified. But when push come, came to shove, you always said yes. First of all, let me say this. I love algebra. <laughs> <laughs> so not, not calculus, not anything deeper, but I really enjoy algebra and handling algebraic equations. So you know, it's kind of like even when you know, we study the Bible with people in you know, Acts 2.38, repentance plus baptism equals forgiveness of sins and Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, I just love that. For me, that just makes sense. And so... You know, as far as I see it, your, your, your BA is when you're born again. That's your first degree, your BA, you're born again. That's the first equation, right. Acts 2.38. Then you graduate to your MBA, your master's in Bible algebra. You're now <laughs> a disciple, and now you're called to push out a bit more. You go in the strength you have, together with God's power. And at that point, there is no need to be afraid. And so coming back to your... To, to, um, your question in terms of how did I push past that? To be honest, and I know I mentioned this in the book, sometimes I was too afraid to say no, mm. to, be, to, to be really honest with you. Even when Jim called me you know, onto the mission team to Kenya, I, I just thought, like, how can I say no? I am a disciple, and I'm calling myself a disciple. We're here to make disciples. We're here to you know, win the world for Christ. How can I say I stand for that and then say, no, I'm not going to Kenya? So sometimes, Rob, I was I was too afraid to say no. So I said it's kind of like out of weakness. And other times, I would say I was kind of like pushed in. You know, people with very good uh, motives were pushing me, helping push me. And I think I, I don't know if you've heard of this story. 
where there was a, a king who had a daughter and uh, he wanted her to get married. And so he got a, a, a lot of, uh, a bunch of gentlemen and, uh, you know, who wanted to marry his daughter. And they said, you've got to prove yourself. So there was a, uh, you know, a stretch of river. It had, you know, alligators and, you know, all sorts of, you know, water creatures that are undesirable and lethal. And so you had these guys lined up and suddenly one guy is in the water and he's navigating his way and he's getting, and he, and he gets to the other side. And the king is like, yes, yes. You know, cause you know, the offer, there was his daughter. There was, you know, what do you want? You know, there's just name it. And the guy says, I want the guy who pushed me in. <laughs> and so I think many times I was pushed in by people who had enough vision for me to say, you know what, Rice, you can do this. And then another thing for me, at a certain point, it just made sense to step out of my comfort zone. Right. And that's what we see, for example, with Gideon. That's what we see with Moses. That's what we see throughout the Bible. Fishermen who became apostles, you know, tax collectors, they, they had to go out of their comfort zone to really make a difference. And then the men and women on, on the mission team were amazing, incredible examples. I couldn't be around them and not at certain points just step beyond my weaknesses and my fears. Right, right. That, that made a huge It makes a, such a huge difference, the, the people that you're in immediate contact with. One of those is Bob Stia. He's in the church here in Tucson, and I know you know him. He, he told me a story about how he got selected to go to Africa, and he said that prior to that, he's like, man, I feel sorry for anyone who's going to Africa. I, 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 I never want to go to that. And like shortly afterwards, he got invited to go on the mission team. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. You guys must have been brothers from another mother or something like that. But he seemed like he had this a very similar experience. And Bob's Bob's incredible. Uh, Bob, Bob's amazing. Um, and in in the book, I, I write about uh, among other things the other men who were on that mission team, right. even the women who were on that mission team, just incredible people. Because I look at myself, I was going back to Kenya, reluctant as I was, right. but I had grown up. There was familiarity. For, 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 for the others, this was like, it's not like what you're saying, like Bob had never been to Kenya. Why go to Kenya? Right. And I, and I admire that they made that decision. Right. Okay, but here's what <clears throat> really surprised me. And I want to read a passage from, from your book. And it says, okay, you went, you went and planted a church in, is it Eldoret? Okay, which yeah. is in Kenya. You, okay, you're 22. And it says, living alone most of the first month was trying. I missed the disciples in Nairobi. I rented a single room with an earth floor and a corrugated iron sheet roof. My only furniture was a mattress to sleep on and a basin to use for taking cold baths in the morning. My daily routine was simple. Wake up, have my quiet time, buy tea and bread for breakfast in a neighborhood kiosk, and head into town. Once there, I'd simply reach out to people and invite them to study the Bible with me. In the evening, I'd return to the same kiosk for supper, usually beans and greens, and then went back to my room to sleep. I just was like, oh my gosh. I mean, okay, I'm assuming that growing up in international schools, you, you were pretty well off comparatively, relative to the general population in Kenya and Ethiopia and Morocco. 
that you led a fairly privileged life in relative to the general population. But now going back and then planting a church and then you're living in a dirt floored hut. Okay, I want to know, what do you think about that? What was that like? I mean, that is just so incredible. You're right, Rob. It was very different from the way I'd grown up. And yeah, there are points like when my when my dad you know, lived and worked in Ethiopia. We were we were chauffeur driven. That was that's what we had. You know, my dad was working for the Organization of African Unity. He was the assistant secretary general for economics. Um, you know, that's the career he carved out for himself. I salute him. And so yeah, this was very different. Um, you know, what happened, by the way, was I had had a lull in my faith. And I was looking around me, I was seeing people who just seemed to be doing great for God. They were excited. And, you know, they, they would reach out to people. People would show up at Bible talk and church and nothing was happening in my life. And so I did a study on the topic of fear of God. I remember that, that it just, it, it changed me. And I just, I reached to the point where I said, you know, I'm ready for anything. I'm ready for a big challenge. I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> that's what I said. And within weeks, going to church, I think it was like maybe the first service uh, in January that year. Service ended. Mike Tolliver calls me over afterwards and says, we want to send you to go plant the church in Nigeria. So what happened when a, a bunch of students who had become uh, Christians in Nairobi, they needed to go back to their university. And their university was close to Eldoret. So that was kind of the impetus to then start the church at that point. So I was going to be in the town of Eldoret. Then those students were going to be over on campus. Then we'd get together every Sunday in, you know, the town of Eldoret. And, um, but yep, that, that was it. That's what I was able to rent. And I just, I, I was totally fine with that, Rob. It's, and, and, I, and I remember people having the same surprise that you kind of expressed. And some people thought like, no, there's no way you're rice. Not rice. Rice is not going to, that's not rice. Right. But, you know, I think that's me. And I just, at that point, I just wanted to, I just wanted to make disciples and, I feel like that whole setup actually was just helped me to have focused living. You know how the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was it. Mm. You know, I, I, I didn't have much. I wasn't kicking back and watching TV or whatever. <laughs> it was just wake up, what, have my breakfast. Now, did you have Netflix you know? back then? We, I None. Get... <laughs> no Netflix. I guess you weren't binging Netflix at that point. N- not at all. No, no, no. I was, I was, I was binging reach out. <laughs> I, I, I love what you write. You said, I guess not too many people expected to run into a one man church in the form of a 22 year old college student with no formal theological training. Okay. Now this is what inspires me about this is that, you know, these days it seems like you have to be 35 with a master's degree and, you know, lots of years of ministry experience before you can plant a church. And yet that's not the way it was. I mean, not that we're looking back to the glory days, but what we're capable of doing in terms of converting people and starting a church, not that that's going to be the final form of the church, but to get it going, you don't, you don't need to have a, a, an advanced degree to, to get the gospel out there. Any, any thoughts on that? I, I agree. You don't need to have an advanced degree. Uh, advanced degrees help. And, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, you know, one of my best friends is now was appointed a teacher, you know, in the church back in, well, several of my friends. Uh, one of them was the best man in my wedding, uh, really close, 
buddies of mine. So I'll be the last person to speak against that. Right. Okay. Because my very good buddies, they're teachers. They've gotten their master's degrees, you know, doctorates. I also heard your interview with um, Greg Marutsky that it was really inspiring. And like all the studying he's doing. Oh my gosh. So, so there's a place for that, but, and a, a, an, an incredible place for that. But like, like you're saying, you don't need that in order to have an impact. Right. You know, and I think you just need to have faith. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that's what it takes. And I think it also helps to have a great support system because it, it was lonely many times being out there in Eldoret. It was scary. Uh, sometimes I, I felt the pressure that I've got to report back that I'm having, you know, hundreds of studies and thousands of visitors right. and you know, things like that and baptisms every day. And so I, I felt that pressure, but there was incredible support. Right. As much as I was alone there in the town, you know, uh, once a week, I'd you know, put a few coins in the phone booth and call back to Nairobi, <laughs> you know, and I'd get some encouragement. It's so amazing. That's one thing I think that makes a huge difference oh. is having... Uh, amazing women and men, uh, uh, spiritual women and men. Okay, so now El- Eldoret, is that in the high country of Kenya? Um, that's You talk a little bit about the, the Kenyan runners at that, at that point. Yes, um, yes. It's, uh, it's high altitude. And so that the area around Eldoret, you know, not necessarily just that town itself, but that the area around Eldoret produces an endless stream of, you know, long-distance runners, they're the ones winning the marathons at the Olympics and New York, Boston marathons, London marathons. I know it. 10,000 meters. And then so you find a lot of non-Kenyan runners as well go there for, for training. So, yeah, that, that's a, a hotbed of, um, of uh, just producing. Right. Uh, and so that's that's really close. To, is the Olduvai Gorge is, runs right through there? The there's the, the, the rift. Well, there's a rift. There's the rift a rift valley. valley. Okay. So Eldred is in the is in the Great Rift Valley. Got it. Okay. Yes. Uh, I I've been to Kenya one time back in the mid '90s, um, and it was it was beautiful. I mean that the the weather there is amazing. You're right on the you're right on the equator, but because of the higher altitude, it's incredible. It's like Southern California or something in the '70s. Seems like just perfect weather. That that must have been very nice. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. Okay, was wonderful. so you don't stop there. You go to Rwanda in '97, like three or four years after the mass genocide, where a million people were killed. Okay, what was that like? I just go, whoa! You're you're going from the frying pan into the fire there. Um, the name of the city, Kigali, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Can you the talk about city. your experience there? Sure. Uh, in fact, between Eldoret and uh, Rwanda, uh, I also went to Ethiopia. But um, uh, yeah, about Rwanda, it was it, it was it was scary and it was exciting. Uh, you know what happened was because I had been on mission teams as a as a single man, and so even when I was single, I said, you know, if I get married, I'd like to do missions with my wife, whoever that wonderful and amazing woman was going to be. I'd like to do missions. And so the opportunity came where we were asked to, uh, to go to Rwanda. And the thing was that, um, right, there had been the genocide, there had been the civil war. So there was no Rwanda embassy in Kenya, by the way. So even trying to get a visa was a challenge. We had to go to another country, Uganda, to get our visas. We had no idea what to expect. And the mission team was the two of us. 
Okay, there's that famous song, Just the Two of Us. Well, that was it, Just the Two of Us. <laughs> but there was a gentleman in, in Rwanda that the leaders of the church had come to know. He wasn't a member of our church, but I, I forget exactly how they came to know him, but they came to know him. So he was the one who was going to like receive us at the airport. And, and, and that was it. Apart from that, he was going to get us to the airport. I mean, receive us at the airport. You know, show us somewhere we could, you know, a little hotel that we could stay in until we could rent a house, and that was it. And uh, but yeah, it was it was scary just because there was so much was unknown. Like we didn't even know did the post office work, you know, did the banks work? It was it was amazing. And then when when we got there, there was also a lot of negative talk. So I went there as a Kenyan, by the way. All right, <laughs> so this time I wasn't an undercover Kenyan. I went there as a Kenyan uh, because since I was in East Africa, it just made more sense. Uh, even logistically to you know not go there as an American but as a Kenyan. Uh, but there was a lot of talk that the Rwandan government did not like Kenyan, or let me say did not like Kenya and did not like churches. Why? They 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 felt that Kenya was harboring people who had orchestrated the genocide. So there was hostility because of that. And then also in the genocide, because there had been previous genocide in Rwanda. And at those points, churches, church buildings were sanctuaries. But with this uh, genocide, the one that was in um, uh, 1994, when people went to churches, uh, church buildings for refuge, those, those just became slaughterhouses. And, and people just got massive, like many places out in their homes as well, et cetera. But churches where everybody accept, uh, expected sanctuary, just, it, it, it just it's like people were herded there and, and massacred. So negative talk like that would scare me. Like, so, okay, I'm, I'm with a church. I'm here as a missionary. I'm from Kenya. Like some people would even tell me, hey, if they know what you're doing here. They're going to kick you out. At one point, I got arrested. At another point, I got summoned over to immigration uh, to write a statement about what, um, what I was doing there. I, I got really questioned. Then there's another time, because what would happen was uh, my wife and I at a certain point would have to get a visa Again, there was no embassy in Kenya at the time. So we'd have to go and get a one-month visa. So leave Rwanda, get a visa, come back. And there's one time in Rwanda, they told us, leave the country and don't come back until your church is registered. And guess what? The government was not registering churches. So in effect, they were saying, get out of Rwanda. But it was amazing how the same place where I got, I, I told you I got summoned, at immigration to write a statement. So there were two different immigration offices. So the one where, I was, where we were told, don't come back until your church is registered, was different from the one where I was summoned to make a statement. So when I went there to make a statement, I mean, I was all fearful. I didn't know what was gonna happen. I said some irresponsible things that were kind of even more offensive to them. I, I think I said something like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, when I was called here, I didn't know what was gonna happen. So already I'm implying that, you know, they do things with people <laughs> right. who, um, who they don't like. But guess what? That gentleman and guess what? He had grown up in Kenya. So a lot of the Rwandan people who then came in um, uh, at the end of the war had grown up around East Africa. So this gentleman had grown up in Kenya. He had been a teacher, and he had been a teacher at my twin brother's high school. And we just connected. 
And he said, ah, I didn't worry. I even told him that we were told to go back and not return until the church is uh, registered. He said, don't worry. Just keep getting your visas and keep coming back. <laughs> so like, so God, oh, God placed an angel right there in your, in your pathway. Exactly. That's awesome. And so it was uh, incredible, but it, it was scary. Like there were marks of war on, on the buildings. Like, like the parliament buildings was pretty much the last stand during the war. And they had deliberately not um, repaired the walls just as a reminder. And, you know, it stands on a hill and you'd see the walls of the parliament buildings and you'd see that this building took shelling and it was, it was a stark reminder. And you'd see it in the people. People would walk around with some really scary uh, injuries, lifelong injuries. And so it's just, it was, I, I had never ex- experienced that as, you know, as my everyday. Right. And, 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 and that's what, um, that's what Kigali was like. I just, I got to hand it to you to, to go into that situation. Um, I remember reading about it, hearing about it and hearing about uh, people importing, you know, thousands and thousands of machetes from, from China and just all the murder there and the slaughter unbelievable yeah i don't want to get off the subject too much but it's just it's just so fascinating i mean you're right there in national international events and it's a tiny little country i mean it's just it's really close there to lake victoria very small little place you said it's the land of a thousand hills or something like that yep very very interesting okay so thousand beautiful hills thousand then you got into hope i mean you, you just kind of took a little side side Thing you got into hope. Can you talk briefly about that? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. So my my wife and I ended up working for a Hope Worldwide in Kenya, and so what happened was two two events happened pretty much at the same time. Uh, there was uh, so within the church, the International Churches of Christ, uh, there was um, you know around two thousand and three uh, with uh, the letter, uh, a lot of things changed, including support. Right. Uh, from the, uh, let me just say, bigger congregations. So, for example, in, in Africa, a lot of the support was coming from New York, uh, I believe from Atlanta as well. And so, as the, as the uh, financial support dwindled, uh, the church was not able to retain the same, you know, all the staff members, uh, all the full-time ministers. And so, you know, gradually, uh, people were being let go. You know, not because they weren't ministering well, right. but because it's just, there wasn't enough money. And at the same time with Hope Worldwide in Kenya, Hope Worldwide had gotten some funding from the U.S. government, from uh, USAID and also from the CDC to do uh, HIV prevention work. And so, uh, so that's how my wife and I ended up uh, leaving the full-time ministry and going to Hope Worldwide. Uh, the folks at Hope Worldwide, God, God, uh, God bless them, felt that my wife and I could maybe make a difference. Oh, yeah. I, I, I didn't think I could. That was, again, one of my, I'm like, you know what? Like HIV prevention, I, <laughs> me? <laughs> um, and it had its own challenge. Uh, but that was their vision. And it was, it ended up being incredible. Incredible. You know, for me, it was, it was life-changing. Mm. It was being involved in the HIV response and working with young people and working in HIV prevention. Wow. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was, it was life changing. Gosh, just so much to talk about it. it, 
I want to go back a little bit. Like when you went to Kigali and and you said you went to Ethiopia, what kind of support package did you get at the time? I want to kind of. I know that there was a big drive to get a church to every country in the continent of Africa. I think there's around fifty. I could be wrong, but it didn't seem like there's a lot of financial support there. I mean, you're riding buses to get back to Nairobi. Do you remember what kind of support you received to get that church going when it was just you and George Ann? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, the folks were, I'd say they did the, the best they, they could with what they had. But I'm just glad we went. Honestly, I'm, I'm glad we went. <laughs> I'm glad no one said, hey, you know, I don't think we, we can do it. Not now. I'm glad we went. Mm. I'm glad we were sent. Mm. But um, yeah, I don't know all the background, but yeah, the, the, the stream of, of financial support wasn't always terribly reliable, you know, but again, we were, we were going on faith. Everybody was, was walking by faith. Right. It wasn't that, you know, we had everything figured out and, you know, there was an incredible supply chain or anything. And so, yeah, there, there were a couple of times we, you know, we ran out of money. And um, you know, I remember jumping on, you know, leaving my wife in, in, in Kigali uh, uh, and, and jumping onto, um, you know, a bus and you, know, you take one bus to the border and then another bus into Uganda and, you know, coming back to Nairobi looking for money. Uh, then there was no money. So I went to my savings <laughs> account, oh my you God. know, with you some money. Then there's one time, actually then, I didn't even have enough money to leave Rwanda to go look for money. But this same gentleman, the one I told you received us at the airport when we first arrived. Right. Um, so he took me to somebody who he knew at the UN. And that person agreed to give me $150. Wow. That person had no idea who I, and $150 in Rwanda, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and especially in Rwanda back then. And she trusted that I was going to come back and I was going to return the money. And um, so God always provided, you know, wow. it's um, as Guy Hammond says, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. I love that. That's and, awesome. and, 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 and God came through. Uh, there's one time where one of the, the, the sisters from the church in, in Kenya, she came over to Rwanda for business. And so one of her local business uh, partners had had money and wanted to donate money. And she's like, well, there's a church here. You could donate to them. He donated $1,500. Wow. That was like a, a king's ransom. Wow. And, and so God was always providing. And um, so things became more reliable financially later on. But um, I think everybody was 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 walking by faith. Mm. The and thing all I, those challenges just helped us grow. The thing I appreciate about you is there's a lack of entitlement. You grew up in a, in a privileged background, but there's a lack of entitlement about your lifestyle. That just like, hey, we're going to get the gospel out there no matter what. Very, very impressive, especially reading it. Now, you, you came back to the States after your time with Hope. What are you doing now, and what are you excited about as you go forward? Right. So what I'm doing now is several things. So I, I work at the United Nations. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm with the United Nations Population Fund. So that's one of the agencies within the United Nations nations. And our main mandate is uh, sexual and reproductive health and rights. And then I'm also an adjunct professor at the New Jersey City University School of Management. And uh, so I teach a part-time, uh, I teach management. And um, 
So one thing I'm excited about and looking forward to, well, one thing that you know we're doing even right now is um, the singles ministry. Uh, my wife and I were asked a few years ago to uh, help out in the singles ministry. And for me, it's, it's, it's been an honor. It's, uh, it's been exciting. And, I, and I'll stay here until they kick me out. So, <laughs> um, you know, in, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, but it's not uncommon that, uh, you know, singles get overlooked. And, and yet, you know, I believe that their place in the church is front and center. I believe everyone's place in the church is front and center. But, um, you know, sometimes I think singles have gotten, you know, somewhat overlooked. And, um, and so right now I feel honored to be able to advocate advocate for the singles, to be side by side with them, to do life with them, to learn from them, and just help contribute to singles being celebrated and, and, and honored. Um, so, Right. I was, uh, I was surprised because as you went through your, your memoir, there was just seemingly like dropped in a section all devoted to singles, which, which was like, wow, okay, you've really got a heart here for the singles. It's interesting that you kind of changed track there in the midst of your book as you're talking about your experiences, all of a sudden you focus on really encouraging the singles. Yes. What happened was, so I, I pretty much had the book together and then uh, the publisher, you know, the good people at um, IPI Books, Illumination Publishers, they said, you know, read through your manuscript again, you know, anything you might want to tweak. And so as I did that, more, new ideas and fresh ideas were coming to my mind. And the singles <laughs> are just so much on my heart. That definitely so, came out. Right. And so where they fit in is, you know, because like you said, the subtitle of my book is looking beyond your weaknesses right. to see the difference your life can make. So I'm not saying that it's a weakness to be single. I'm not saying that. But sometimes people can see that exactly as a gap absolutely as something missing right and single people can look at it that way or sometimes married people can look at singles as oh you know they're 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 not complete right because they're not married and and and, and my point was and is listen be, being single or let me say being married doesn't make you more spiritual right it doesn't you're just married that's all and being single doesn't make you less spiritual right you know take the life that you have Keep dreaming. If it's your goal to get married, amen. Let's, let's, let's keep with that prayer. But we're not waiting to get married in order to do something great. Right. You know, David in the Bible did amazing things. You know, he eventually got married. But he didn't wait to get married to do amazing things. Right, right. When he brought down Goliath, he was a single man. Right. <laughs> with a sling and a stone. <laughs> I love so, what, yeah, I just yeah, have I a love, lot of passion. For I story. love what you talk about. I say, listen, would you look at Jesus's life or Paul's life and say they're somehow incomplete? You know, I don't think so. But I, I know what you're saying. There is that, there can be that mindset. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not complete. I'm not 100% yet. And then I will be. And yet, when you look at your life, so much happened prior to you getting married. Now, Tell me a little bit, how'd you run into George Ann? How'd you guys get together? We got together because she was one of the first people who became a disciple after the church was planted. So, you know, when you're on a mission team, you all know each other. You are the church. You all know each other. And then, you know, a few you know, people start getting baptized and you know them as well. It's, 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 you know, it's a pretty small group there, a dynamic, exciting group. And so that's when I... Um, so that's how I got to know her. Now, now this is the thing. When now, I did first you noticed, did you help her out of the baptistry there and just kind of <laughs> just say? 
Hi, my name. I, I did not. I did not. Actually, Bob Bob Stia was was there. Bob Stia. In fact, my wife later said that, um, and she says it to this day. Bob Stia is the brother who most reminds her of Jesus. Wow. Now it would be nice if she said that I was the brother who most reminded her of Jesus. But listen, I'll, I'll give Bob that. You know, Bob's awesome. But what happened actually? My my first, the first time I noticed uh, Georgianne, I actually had a um, a negative reaction. It was self righteous, but it was negative because I knew that she was studying the Bible. You know, you're kind of aware of who's studying the Bible, and and I felt like you know she was coming to church with a kind of like a long face, and she just looked unhappy, and you know, self righteous. Me is saying, hey, she's being presented with discipleship. How can you walk into church looking sad? How can you like hang your face? You know, and, and what was happening was she was working through her decision. I guess that's part of the reason. Um, and so she eventually got baptized. And, you know, so you know, we're singles. We're getting to know each other. We go on dates and stuff like that. And then, so one day there was a, a Christmas event. And so Jim Brown, he was, um, you know, uh, evangelist there. So he was playing the piano. Um, Frank Davis, that's it. Frank Davis, I think he was on the flute. And then people were gathered around the piano. And I took a picture. I love photography. And I took a picture. And then one day I'm looking at that picture. And in that picture is, is Georgianne. She's one of the people uh, by the piano. And she has this radiant, radiant and glowing smile. Because remember before, my concern was she's always frowning. You know, what's going on? And that actually was the first time I kind of like was like, wow. I, I mean, I like her smile. <laughs> so I can't say we became friends because of her smile. But that kind of, you know, it, for me, it was a spark that said, I think there, there might be something there. She just, that smile for me communicated a lot. Wow. And in the end, we, you know, we became friends. And, you know, so I'd, I'd go, I'd seek advice from, you know, Mike Tolliver was there and, uh, and his wife, Amber Sheet. And I remember one of the things, and, and Bob Stia as well. I remember one of the things that um, uh, that Mike said was that whoever's going to be your partner in life needs to be your friend. Mm. There's got to be a friendship. At least that's how I remember what Mike said. Right. Because every every you know other things will pass. You know, the way the way your wife looks at 25, you know, she's not going to look the same at I don't know 65 if for both of you uh, live long enough. Also, you know, this, this life happens to people. But the one thing, if, if you have that, that's going to keep you together is a friendship. And then over time, I you know, asked myself, well, so who is my friend? And, and I felt like she was. Because she was one person, among other things, I felt like, you know, when going on dates, usually it's important to plan the date and have it, you know, it's really well organized and everything. And then at the end, there's a nice card and all that stuff. But she and I could have unplanned dates and have a great time. Mm. I remember one time we ended up, I don't know how, why we were together, but it was raining. And, you know, we weren't driving cars or whatever. So we're like waiting for the rain to stop. We can, you know, get public transportation. And then I went home and I thought, you know what? I just spent whatever that was, an hour just standing, waiting for the rain to end and had an amazing conversation. Mm. And I thought, that's my friend. Right. And um, so yeah, I eventually... Um, 
put a ring on her finger. Amazing, yes. amazing that you guys went to Rwanda together. You adopted a child together, Paul. Um, I, I mean, that's a that's an inspiring story right there. Um, I, but I, I want to, I just want to just wrap it up here and just ask you this question. You wrote this book, Go in the Strength You Have. And I'd like to know what advice would you give to those who want to make this life count, who may feel like, you know, I'm not equipped, I'm not ready, I'm afraid, I, I'm not all I need to be. Maybe I don't stack up against people that I compare myself to. Um, what advice would you give so that, that that person can feel like, hey, I, I lived a life of no regrets? I mean, when I look at your life, Rice, I go, whoa. I mean, you, you, you lived it, you did it, you took the action, you stepped into it, you faced your fears. Now you're working for the UN, you're a professor, you're writing a book. I go, it's pretty complete. But what would a person need to do if, let's say they're younger, and they're facing those same fears, and they're like, I don't think I could do that. that I'm, I'm just not that type of a person. Yeah, one thing I'd say is ride the vision that others have for you. And um, now before I go into that more, I, I just wanted to mention that even in the book, and just that whole theme of weakness, for me, for me, it was also an opportunity just to address different themes that some people, not everybody, but some people find difficult to talk about. Like you mentioned adoption. You know, so my wife and I had, had challenges, you know, with, um, around fertility. And, you know, to this day, we have not, you know, had a child, you know, born of us. That's a very sensitive topic infertility um you know adoption now in kenya adoption was a, a pretty unpopular thing there's a lot of stigma around adoption we adopted our son uh, paul um and 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 you know it, it was an opportunity to, to to put it out there to normalize the conversation about things like adoption about you know things like infertility about being able to embrace your weakness without any sense of of shame. Now it's, it's challenging. It's challenging. It's not easy. <laughs> you know, um, you know, my wife and I have had different marital challenges. Uh, you know, we went in for, we you know, decided at one point we did uh, marriage counseling. And sometimes in the church, I had, even, I had people criticize me. Why are you going for counseling? And that used to be my mindset. If we've got the Bible, why do you need counseling? Right. And the way I, uh, the way I see it now, counseling is just like mentoring in the church. It's just that your professional counselor and therapist might have additional tools right. that your mentor in the, in the church does, doesn't have. And so for me, it was an opportunity to, to talk about some of these challenges, talk about sensitive issues that have happened to us. We're not talking about somebody else. And hopefully give people the space um, if, if there's a challenge that they have in you know, addressing similar or other issues in their lives, that there's space. To just, you know, put our weaknesses before God, put our challenges before God, and still live our best life. You know, so that, that, that was just one uh, thing I wanted to throw in there, really, uh, you know, uh, regarding the book. And, um, but yeah, but, but back to this. For me, that's, that's made a big difference in my life, is writing the vision that others have had for me. And, you know, without that, I would, I would never have attended Williams College. You know, I ended up there because my, my high school track coach in Morocco was an alum of Williams College. Mm. And he said, you can do it. You, you can get in <laughs> and, you can be, and you can be awesome. You know, for me to accept the missionary call as a teenager, 
that that was that was Jim Brown's vision for me. Even on the mission team, he would just keep spewing all sorts of encouragement. At some point, I thought he was crazy. Like, like all these things he's saying, like Rice, you can do this and that. But again, it was his vision, you know, becoming a professor. That wasn't my idea. That was the idea of my mentor when I did my MBA. It was his idea. It was his vision for me, writing a book, having a career in the um, global response to uh, the HIV pandemic. All those things for me in my life came from writing the vision other people had for mm. me. And so that's really what I would pass on is, now I know some people are like uber confident, <laughs> you know, they believe they can do anything. And I, you know, my hat, my, my hat off to, to people like that. I can't, I can't relate to people like that. I know there are people like that. They're just like, super confident you know but for anybody who's um maybe a bit more uh a bit more like me uh, i would say even when you are lacking vision for yourself even when you're maybe feeling inadequate or like you don't measure up ride the vision that others have for you and that's what gideon did when he went in the strength that he had he didn't have vision for himself certainly not as a leader but he rode the vision that was given to him he wrote the support because at every point, what God, when God said, go in the strength you have, God was saying, you'll never walk alone. And in the words in Isaiah 41, 13, where God says, For I am the Lord, your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. That's what God is saying when he says, go in the strength you have. And so I would encourage um, anybody in the situation you mentioned ride the vision that others have. That's awesome. I loved your book. And, and if a person wants to get a hold of it, where, where would they find your book? How could they buy your book? My book is, uh, it's published by um, Illumination Publishers. And so it's available from Illumination Publishers. And also on Amazon. So it's also uh, on Amazon. You know, if you key in going the strength you have, it pops up. Uh, and then, you know, my name is there, Ryona Osanya. <laughs> so th- those, are, those are two places that you can get it. I love- Amazon and also through Illumination Publishers. Yeah, I just, I, I thought it was great. I love the pictures. I also love, you know, I love this picture of your great-grandfather, Arturo, yes, Arturo Schoenberg. Schoenberg. Yeah, can you just... Before we wrap up, can you just give a little background on that? You got a very famous uh, ancestor. Yeah, so Arturo Schomburg, uh, correct, is my he's my great grandfather. Okay, yeah, he's my great grandfather. So his father was German, and his mom was from the U.S. Virgin Islands. So what happens is uh, there was a German sea merchant called Schomburg, and he met up with this beautiful young lady from the U.S. Virgin Islands. And um, they ended up having a son, that's Arturo Schomburg. And he was born in Puerto Rico, grew up around Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands. And at one point, um, as, as the story goes, I actually have a biography of, uh, here in my bookshelf of, of my great grandfather. But at one point, when he was in school in Puerto Rico, his teacher is said to have made the comment that black people have no history. And so that's set Arturo Schomburg on a course to document and, and highlight and celebrate uh, the, 
the history of black people, mm. mostly in the diaspora, not so much in Africa. And so he moved from Puerto Rico to uh, New York. Uh, he was based in Harlem for a long time. And so he did a lot of uh, you know, research and just collected a lot of literature. And that's why today there's a, a library named after him. It's called the Schomburg Institute for Research in Black Culture. It's pretty much the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library. And so that picture there from a stamp. So there was a stamp series. I believe that was in 2020 that was released right. called Harlem Renaissance. And he was one of uh, five people featured. So there's a U.S. Postal Service stamp with uh, my great grandfather on it. That's really, really awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time and thank you for your life and sharing it. Uh, it it's so encouraging because you're, you're, really connecting with something we all feel at times. Like I don't, I don't measure up. I'm not as good as that person, whoever that person might be. I don't have what it takes. And yet you have lived it in the sense of pushing past the fear to make this life count. And I just want to wish you all the best and, and may your remaining years be even more adventurous and exciting. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'd like to thank you for having me certainly. Um, I've had a great time uh, talking. I've enjoyed the conversation. I have your book. I just got your book, so I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into it. And thank you also for your podcast because I've, you know, I've listened to, um, you know, several of your interviews, and, and they're incredibly inspiring. So I, I wish you the best in, with your podcast. I wish you the best in what you're doing in, in Tucson. One of the things, allow me to say this, is one of the things I came across on your podcast was where you had. Um, Al Baird come in and just, you know, look at the church, be with the church. And I thought that was incredible as, as a leader, like to open yourself up to that kind of um, a critique. I, I thought that was just incredibly courageous and humble. So thank you just for you, for your life, for your podcast and um, the ministry that, you know, your, your podcast is um, is, is serving. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.